All right, so this is what we're going to do. We're going to start reading from um, verse 30 of chapter 22 of Acts, uh, of Acts and then we're going to um, 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 read the whole of Acts 23. Yeah, If you're new to our church, welcome. My name's Obed. I'm one of the leaders here, and we are a church that desires to be a church family on mission with Jesus, and we are passionate, and we are obsessed with Jesus, we're obsessed with the theme of Jesus, so therefore we are a church family and on mission with Jesus. We're not doing this alone, okay? Um, we are doing it with Jesus being the driving force of everything we do. And so welcome. If it's your first time, don't leave without saying hello to me or one of the leaders. We want to just say hello and connect with you and see how we can serve you best. And so make sure you do that, all right? If I don't recognize you and I see you leaving without saying hello to me, or one of the, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to track you down. I, I do that. It's not a joke. Oh, yes, it is. Let's read. All right, um, Acts 22, verse 30. The commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews. So the next day he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the members of the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul um, and had him stand before them. Acts 23. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers... I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, how dare you insult God's high priest? Paul replied, Brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest, for it is written, Do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I'm a Pharisee descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and then the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believe all these things. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. Verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. The next morning... Some Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat on drink or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and the elders and said, We have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you, the Sanhedrin, petitioned the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. 
we are ready to kill him before he gets here. But when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul, the prisoner sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took the, the, young, the, commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside and asked, what is it you want to tell me? He said, some Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man with this warning. Don't tell anyone that you have reported this to me. Verse 23. You guys doing well? Yeah, yeah. It's fascinating, isn't it? All right. Verse 23, then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide horses for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. He wrote a letter as follows, Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews, and they were about to kill him. But I came with my troops and rescued him, for I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to the, the Sanhedrin. I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against a man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. So the soldiers carrying out their orders took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris. The next day they let the cavalry, the, the cavalry, the cavalry, sorry, go on with him while they returned to the barracks. When the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from. Learning that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear your case when your accusers get there. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. Wow. What a pulsating um, chapter. All right, let's pray and let's get into studying it, yeah? All right, God, thank you so much for this time. Thank you, God, for allowing us to gather this morning. Thank you for being here with us. God, your presence is manifest. It's displayed in a unique way when your people gather to exalt your son, Jesus Christ. And so as we endeavor to do so through this incredible episode from the book of Acts, I pray that you would do 
only what you can do, Lord. And that is to cause all of us to live lives that bring you glory because of what you've done for us through Jesus, your son. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, And so this week's episode from Acts um, is set after the events of last week. Um, Last week, if you remember, um, a predominantly Jewish crowd called for Paul's execution um, after he shared the story of how he became a Christian and how God had called him to Gentiles. You guys remember that, right? You remember that clearly. That's what happened last week. Um, this episode opens up with a battered and bruised Paul standing before the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem ready to make another defense. The Sanhedrin was the highest court of justice and the Supreme Council in ancient Jerusalem. It was an organization so ridiculously powerful, it had complete authority in matters of Jewish law. And Paul's here, he's standing before the Sanhedrin, um, about to stand trial because Claudius Lysias, who was the commander of the Roman soldiers, wants to find out exactly what all the fuss is about with Paul. Okay, like since Paul arrived in Jerusalem, there's been riots and there's been people wanting to take his life. And he just wants to find out why exactly Paul is being accused in this way. And so what he does is he summons the Sanhedrin to help him figure this out. But what was intended as a procedure to bring clarity ended up making the whole situation more complicated than it already was. And so despite the complications, despite what we've just read and what we're going to dig deeper in, there's some things we can learn from this, okay? And so from this fascinating historical event from Acts, this is what we're going to discover. We're going to discover best practices for responding to injustice, um, how we are to respect authority, and how Jesus encourages us when we need it the most. Okay, so they're the things we're going to look at today. Okay, the first thing we discover from this story is the need for us to speak out against injustice. If you're making notes, speak out against injustice. And so, as I said, Paul standing um, before the Sanhedrin, um, he just had not too long ago, had an opportunity to defend himself before um, the Jewish people. Um, He now has another opportunity to defend himself and prove that he's innocent. And so, how's he going to do it? Okay, what's he going to say this time that will prove his innocence before the Sanhedrin? Let's look at verse 1 to see how Paul begins his defense. So Paul, it says, Paul looked straight, into the San, straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. This is an interesting statement, okay? Um, and the reason I say that is it can easily be misunderstood. It can easily be taken the wrong way. Why is that? Um, because it just comes across as if Paul is being prideful. 
okay? Um, it, it comes across as if he's saying that I am perfect and I am sinless and I have done everything right. And so, um, before we begin to think, Paul's being prideful. Let me help us understand what he's really saying. And so he's not saying he's sinless. He's not saying he's perfect. But I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day is Paul's way of basically saying I'm innocent. Paul's standing trial before the Sanhedrin. And so he's basically using lingo and vocabulary that's suitable for the occasion to let them know that he's not guilty of the charges brought against him. Unfortunately, the Sanhedrin take his claim of innocence the wrong way. Um, In fact, they are super offended by it, so offended. Have a look at what happens next in verse 2. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. And so the high priest, who's named Ananias, as soon as Paul says, I'm innocent, right, orders a group of guys to just punch Paul in the mouth. So severe. What has he done to deserve this? And so the question is, how does Paul respond? He's obviously shocked by what just happened. He just got punched in the mouth for no apparent reason. He's probably mad and offended. Um, And so look how he displays his offense in verse 3. Then Paul said to him, to the high priest, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. So Paul is outraged here, okay? He's basically saying, you are ordering me to be struck. If you do that, God will strike you. You are like those people the prophets spoke about. A wall that's rotten inside, but which has been whitewashed over to look all right until the moment you come tumbling down. Paul is outraged, so much so that he recruits the high priest and then predicts that one day God will punish him for his unjust behavior. The reason they had gathered was to examine okay, the accusations brought against him, against Paul, by the Jewish mob. Yet what's happening is that the high priest has just violated the rules of the Sanhedrin by ordering that he be struck in the mouth. Here, Paul is basically saying, look, your job is to uphold the law, but you've just broke the law by punishing me when I've not yet been convicted. In other words, you're abusing your power. Matthew Henry, who did a commentary on the whole Bible, says this, Paul did not speak This in any sinful heat or passion, but in a holy zeal against the high priest's abuse of his power. With holy zeal, Paul spoke against the high priest's abuse of power. And in doing so, he was basically um, laying out for us the blueprint on how of how we should respond 
to injustice. Okay, if you've been with us throughout the book of Acts, there are many prominent themes, okay? And recently, I would say, what, in the last two months or something, right, the theme that has been coming up over and over again has been what? Okay, it's been the idea of us suffering for Jesus and dying to self. Okay, I've spoke to several people and they've been like, man, like Acts, it's just the same thing. It's like preach the gospel and probably if you preach the gospel, you're going to suffer for it. Okay, that's been the theme that has been coming up over and over again. And if you haven't noticed, I don't know where you've been. Okay, <laughs> I don't know where you've been. It's been over and over again, right? It's a constant theme in the book of Acts. But in view of this theme, this is what we must be careful of. We must be careful not to confuse suffering with Jesus with being illegally mistreated. Suffering may be part of Christianity, but we're not called to accept unnecessary suffering. What do I mean by this? Charles Swindle is going to help us, okay? He says this, a strange trend in Christian teaching has twisted the doctrine of submission into something grotesque and tragically unlike anything Jesus taught. It's the idea that Christians should submit to any kind of abuse that happens to come their way. Christians everywhere seem to believe that accepting abuse and humiliation is part and parcel of the Christian life and therefore that they should take their beatings when they could otherwise avoid injustice. But that's not biblical teaching. Put simply... There's a difference, all right? There's a difference between suffering for Jesus and being a victim of injustice. There's a difference between suffering because of the gospel and being illegally ill-treated. Ajit Fernando, who wrote an awesome commentary on Acts, says this, I do not think God intends a battered wife to bear her pain silently when she is being physically abused and treated as a subhuman by her husband. A child must be encouraged to protest sexual abuse that he or she may be facing. Workers who are underpaid should appeal to their employers to be fair. You get what I'm saying? Are you guys with me? Okay, suffering for Jesus doesn't mean we turn a blind eye and a deaf ear to injustice. We're called to uh, expose any form of injustice. We're called to speak up against it and protest against all forms of injustice. Okay, during the pandemic, there was um, an awakening in our nation and around the world about the reality of systemic um, racism. And um, as a church and churches all around the world began, okay, uh, um, to speak out against systemic racism. 
It's part of our Christian duty to speak up for those who are being dehumanized or treated unjustly. And so, listen to me. If you're here and you've been or you are a victim of abuse of any kind, don't see it as your cross to bear. Don't see it as your way of suffering for the gospel. See it as illegal, sinful behavior that violates the law of God and the law of the land, and you need to do something about it. You need to tell someone about it. Charles Swindle again says, We as Christians are called to suffer with Christ in the war against Satan and sin, but God never calls us to lay down human dignity when we have the option to see justice prevail. Are you enduring unnecessary suffering? Have you been misinterpreting your suffering? Maybe you're here and you're viewing your suffering as a Christian, as, man, it's a result of uh, uh, my commitment to Jesus Christ. This is why I'm suffering when you should see it as injustice that clearly violates the law of the land that needs to be exposed. Once again, let me be clear. Suffering for Jesus is what we're called to as Christians We're not called to unnecessary suffering that violates the law of the land. And so we've just seen, right, from this story, from Paul's example, we should speak up against injustice. Next, we'll see the importance, listen to this, of respecting those in authority. (laughs) Good morning. Right. And so Paul's trial before the Sanhedrin has got off to a bad start. We can see it, okay? He, he, he just got punched in the mouth for simply pleading his innocence. Um, he believes he's being unfairly treated, and the Sanhedrin are abusing their power. So what does he do? He calls out and he speaks out against um, the fact that they're breaking the law. And so what happens next in this pulsating story? Look at verse 4. Those who were standing near Paul said, How dare you insult God's high priest? In those days, insulting a Jewish high priest was viewed as a serious offense. Okay, the high priest, that guy, was like the Pope. Okay, he had so much authority, so much power, and he was highly revered by the Jewish community. And so, to insult him in any way, you, you, you would get in a lot of trouble. Okay, we, we're so different now in our day and age. Okay. Like our leaders and authority figures, we can just like go online, <laughs> right? And insult them as much as we want, 
okay? And that's just part of our culture. But then the high priest, you don't insult the high priest. And so the men who just punch Paul in the face rebuke him for disrespecting the high priest. Paul here, just imagine yourself. Imagine being a fly of the wall and being in this. Um, you can imagine the scene, okay? He, he's alone, okay? He's outnumbered. Um, the situation he finds himself in keeps getting worse. Everything he does and says just invites more trouble and more hostility. Um, he's been a victim of injustice and abuse of power, okay? And he just got rebuked for insulting the high priest. And so the question is, what does he do next? How does he respond to all of this? What does he say? What does he do? Look at verse 5. Paul replied, Brothers, uh, I did not realize that he was a high priest, for it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your... Like, that response to me is... Like, be honest with yourself. If you were reading this for the first time, and some of you, this is the first time you know this story, like, admit it. This is an unexpected response. If I was in his shoes and I got punched, okay, um, for no apparent reason, and then I just like, just like spewed out some insults because I was mad, and then I was told I just insulted the high priest, I wouldn't respond like this. I would go, you deserve it, bruv. <laughs> you high priest, who do you think you are? You just punched me in the... No, you deserve it. What? That's not how Paul responds. Paul's response is the opposite. He doesn't push back. He doesn't respond negatively. Instead, this is what he does. It's fascinating. He acknowledges he's done wrong and then apologizes. Okay? Okay, in modern vernacular... This is what Paul is saying in verse 5. My bad. (laughs) Sorry, man. The scriptures command us not to speak evil against our, our leaders. And I'm guilty. I have failed miserably. Paul recognized his fault and responded with humility by apologizing because his rebuke was expressed or levied towards someone whose office ought to be respected. Paul was human. Yeah, we're thankful for these. I just love the, 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 the book of Acts. They're not trying to like polish everything. They're not trying to sanitize everything, Okay. They're just documenting what actually happened in history. And I mean, the Apostle Paul, man, he's one of the most influential Christian figures ever. He wrote so much of the New Testament. And I love how um, not just here in Acts, but also throughout Acts and some of his letters, it's just reminding us that he was human and he made mistakes. But the most interesting thing in this scenario is that he owned up to his mistakes. Paul's apology, this is what it's teaching us, therefore uh, um, displays um, respect for the high priest. 
even though he was just unfairly treated, the Apostle Paul responds to the authority before him with respect. In a similar way, if you're a Christian, you're expected to respond to authority with honor. Okay? You are commanded to respect authority even if you disagree with that authority. Even if they are unjust and ungodly. One pastor said it this way. As Christians, we're called to respect the position the person holds even if we don't respect the person who holds the position. The Bible commands us to have so many commands, but this is, some, this is one of the commands that is just really hard to live by, okay? Bible commands us in Romans 13, read Romans 13, verses 1 to 7. It, it talks about uh, the need for Christians to submit to the governing authorities. And then, if you turn the pages and go to 1 Timothy chapter 2, it talks about how we should, as Christians, pray for kings and all who are in authority. Put simply, Christians are expected to honor, respect, pray for, and obey governing authorities. As long as as we aren't being coerced to sin against God, following Jesus includes submitting to and praying for all of our public authorities. An unknown author said this, okay, meaning unknown. I found it online somewhere, and I was like, this is awesome. <laughs> I couldn't find the name, but he says this. The point is clear. As long as we can do so without denying Christ or compromising our faith, we must always strive to cooperate with the ruling powers. That doesn't necessarily mean that we will endorse all of their policies or approve of every specific action they take. Nevertheless, Christians are responsible to uphold biblical righteousness in a hostile culture while also expressing respect for its leadership. He just said everything I'm good, I wanted to say. But I want to say more. One of the main ways I believe we can honor God is how we respond to those he has put in authority over us. <laughs> Whether we agree or disagree with our authority, showing honor and respect to them is what we're called to as Christians. Because... In showing honor and respect, we also honor and respect God. Why? Because God is the one um, who, through his perfect wisdom and his perfect purposes, is the one that has ultimately established all authority. In other words, we're called to respect all authority. Why? Because God put them there in the first place. God is the one who established their authority. Out of respect for God, we're called to respect and honor governing authorities. And so, how's it been going for you? 
how you've been doing in this area. How have you been relating to authority figures? If you're a Republican, let's just say, if you're a Republican, how have you been viewing President Joe Biden? If you're more of a Democrat, how have you viewed Donald Trump and other Republican leaders? Our very own governor, Gavin Newsom, everybody, has failed miserably during the pandemic, and he's come under intense scrutiny. As a result, he's been a victim of so much abuse online. I mean, you should go on his Instagram. Every time he posts something, I mean, you should see the comments. A huge percentage of comments are abuse, and yes, he's failed miserably, and people are like calling for him to be recalled and everything, but my question to you is, have you joined in with disrespecting him in any way? Are you showing respect to authority? Or are you using their unjust behavior to justify disrespecting them? Guys are going to have fun in community group this week, aren't you? <laughs> so much to talk about. As long as we can do so without denying Christ or compromising our faith, Christians are expected to honor, respect, pray for, and obey governing authorities. I'm just a messenger. If you're like, upset with me right now, like, I am just a messenger. It's there in Scripture. And Paul is exemplifying that for us, isn't he? He really is. And so we've seen through this fascinating story that we're to speak out against injustice, we're to respect those in authority. Lastly, um, we're to expect encouragement, expect encouragement in, in the midst of a broken and unjust world with, to expect encouragement. And so after expressing his sincere apology for disrespecting the high priest um, and thereby showing respect to authority, okay, um, that's, look at verse 6 to see what Paul says next. Then Paul knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, <coughs> called out in the Sanhedrin, my brothers, I'm a Pharisee, descendant from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. Now, this statement about his identity as a Pharisee and his belief in the resurrection um, is legit. It's true. He's not lying in any way, shape, or form. He's not. But this statement actually stirs up a religious storm that divides the Sanhedrin. If you don't believe me, look at verse 7. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. 
And so Paul's like, I'm a Pharisee. Pharisee of Pharisees. Okay, blah, blah, blah. And then suddenly there's this dispute erupts between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Why? Look at verse 8. Because the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believe all these things. Oh, gosh. Paul has just, like, pricked a nerve. Is that the right way? Are there any doctors in here? Pricked a nerve. Struck a nerve. I like pricked a nerve. I like that. That's just way more poetic. Come on, let's use other words. Pricked a nerve, okay? He's just done that. He's just done that. <laughs> oh, and I wish we had time to look at why he did it and what was his motive and everything like that, but we don't, okay? We don't. We have to keep going on. Before this, uh, the Sanhedrin had been united against Paul, but now they were divided in conflict with each other because of their differences of doctrinal positions. And so the Roman commanders' purpose in calling this meeting was to have the Sanhedrin help him find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews. That was the purpose. Okay? And here they are. The Sanhedrin, he's recruited to help him figure out who this Paul was. They're fighting amongst themselves. It's crazy. The conflict becomes really violent. Really violent. Just incredible. More violent than the, the House of Parliament. Have you guys ever seen the British like, Parliament and how they like, just fight and like, 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 verbally abuse each other? You guys think that is violent. Like, I think that is just unacceptable. I'm like, you guys are British men who are supposed to be leading our country. And here you are trying to make decisions. And you have allowed your passion to cause you to just say awful and hideous things towards each other. Okay? And this is obviously worse because it's getting really violent. And it gets so violent, um, the commander actually begins to fear for Paul's life. Look at verse 10. The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. Whatever was going on, it was intense. And so he ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. And so Paul is in the barracks. He's in a cell. He's just had a near-death experience. Within a few hours, he has endured much physical pain. He's been beaten by a Jewish mob. They nearly killed him. Okay, Acts 22, we learned that last week. Okay, um, he's just been punched in the mouth for no apparent reason. Okay, a victim of injustice and abuse of power. And moments ago, he was close to being torn to pieces by the religious leaders. That's what's happening in his life. This is a difficult, difficult night for Paul. Uh, I was thinking about this. If this were a scene in a movie, you would hear melancholy music playing in the background as he sits in a cell, nursing his wounds, and considering what's going to happen next. 
he's had a desire to go to Rome and declare the gospel there, but right now he's not sure whether he would make it there. This is the Apostle Paul. But I think what's most discouraging for Paul right now has to be the negative reactions he's had to the gospel. Ever since he was commissioned for the ministry, he's had a burning desire for his people, the Jews, to come to know God through Jesus Christ. And yes, he's witnessed some Jews come to the faith, but the recent rejections, right? You remember last week, he spoke to a crowd and they just rejected him and wanted him killed. And now he's before the authorities, the ruling authorities of the Jewish people, and they too reject him. And so you can imagine how discouraged he is. But when the fears came upon Paul in the darkness of night, when his trust seemed to falter, when he wasn't sure what his future holds, was exactly when Jesus came to Paul and stood by him. Look at verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. In some of your translations, it says, um, be of good cheer. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. In other words, this is what's happening. This is what Jesus is saying to him, okay? Um, through this um, supernatural vision-inspired encounter, Jesus is saying, despite the surrounding chaos, despite the endangerment you've gone through, Paul, and despite, despite the justice, this you have experienced at the hands of the Jewish leaders and the Roman leaders, there is still a future for you. You will continue to be my instrument in taking the gospel to Rome. And nothing is going to stop you from doing this. And so Paul needed this visit from Jesus. Why? Because even though his situation was bad, it was about to get worse. Okay, look, verse 12 and 13, and he doesn't know this is happening, okay? He, the next morning, some Jews formed a conspiracy. And what did they do? And they bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. My goodness. How much do you hate someone? They hate him so much. They want him to be annihilated and just dead. Group of guys, about 40 of them, say to themselves, we're not going to eat until we kill Paul. But their plan to kill Paul was unsuccessful. Why? Um, because Paul's nephew ends up finding out about the plot 
And then Paul's nephew goes and tells Paul, and then Paul tells the commander, and the commander um, then um, figures out a way to get Paul out of there. Okay, that's the rest of the story. Everything that happened to Paul. Oh, by the way, so their whole plan, these 40 guys, was unsuccessful. Okay? They said they weren't going to eat until they killed Paul. They didn't end up killing Paul, and so the question is, what happened to them? <laughs> you, I'm sure you thought of that. What happened to them? <laughs> Doesn't tell us. Do they all starve to death? Do they go back on their oath? Do they think, you know what, nah, whatever. She's going to eat my steak. Doesn't tell us, but I wonder what happened to them. Everything that happened to Paul, the plot against his life, the discovery of the plot, his transfer to Governor Felix, all played a role in God's plan to get Paul to Rome. The circumstances he was facing just seemed so crazy and confusing, but God's word to Paul would be his anchor. Once again, the moment of crisis becomes the moment of vision, says M.T. Wright. These moments are tough. Moments when we find ourselves struggling to believe God's promises for us. In 2020, beginning of 2020, my family and I encountered some major visa issues. the most difficult season of my life when we found out that we were going to have to leave our church family, people we love, city we love, and move back to England not knowing that we'll be able to make it back. Most of you guys walked that journey with us of, you know, I remember the first Sunday we came to announce that we were going to have to head back to England. It was devastating. It was a really difficult season for us. Um, I remember when Tylon and Katie were driving us to LAX airport um, with some of our stuff and us not knowing whether we were ever going to come back because the attorneys were like, look, there's uh, um, your visa and everything. It's, it's like your history and how things have come about is just all over the place and we're not sure whether we're going to be able to get you back. It was hard. And then obviously you guys know we got to England February 1st. It was my birthday, the worst birthday ever. You know, I get off the plane in London, you know, it's my city, family have come to see us, it's my birthday, and I am fuming. Um, 
um, when I when I when I when I encounter difficult times, I I, I get angry. And I just, you know, if I was white, my face would be red all the time or something. Um, I'm just <sighs> so angry. Um, and then, you know, we settled. And then after that, after we settled, it took us a few weeks to settle, find school, find a place to live. After all of that happened, you know, the whole world goes into lockdown. Um, and then we are like, gosh, this is crazy. This is nuts. But that also allows us to continue to be involved in the church. And you guys know we're here. God brought us back. But when we found out we had to go um, back, the questions I was asking God was like, what happened to this? You called me to San Diego, and um, you have brought all of these people together, and you're doing this great and awesome work in and through kings, is this it? Is this it? Similar to Paul, it was like Paul's in prison, super discouraged, and he's like, man, like God, like I feel like I'm hurting right now, and I'm so wounded, and I feel like I'm going to die. Is what you said about me going to Rome, is that actually going to happen? They were some of my questions. And I'm sure you've asked similar questions, haven't you? Questions that relate to you being super discouraged and feeling hopeless because you are struggling to believe that what God has promised will actually come to fruition. Are you wondering whether God will give you um, the things you desire and the things he's promised you. Maybe you're here and you're single, okay, and you desire to be married, but the longer you're single, the more you struggle to believe you'll ever get married, okay? Um, uh, perhaps um, for some of you, you've sinned horribly, okay? You are engaged in this habitual sin that you just cannot, like, um, eject yourself from. And you're wondering to yourself, God, like, you've promised me this life of purity and you've promised me this life of deliverance. Are you ever going to fulfill your promise by helping me live impurity or something. Maybe for some of you, you're struggling to believe that God actually will forgive you. Maybe for some of you, you're like, man, God, like we've been looking at the book of Acts and you've been calling us to evangelize and share the gospel. And I've tried to be faithful in sharing the gospel, but I'm not seeing anyone. I'm not seeing any fruit. All I'm getting is people and family and everyone just rejecting me and not wanting anything to do with Jesus. God, I, I, I thought, you know, I'm seeing acts and I'm hearing about people sharing the gospel and them being saved. You saved me. Why can't you save the people that I'm sharing the gospel with?
whatever you're going through, however you're struggling, listen to me. And I need this for myself. One of the most important things to remember is that Jesus continues to provide encouragement, direction, guidance, and counsel, especially when you need it the most. It's simple, but it's true, and it's hard for us to believe when we're in it. When Jesus died, okay, when Jesus resurrected and ascended to heaven and took his place at the right hand of God, he, didn't, he, 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 he did not stop being actively involved with his people. Jesus never went, it is finished. He's up in heaven, crosses his arms and just looks down. He is actively involved in the lives of his people right here, right now. His relationship with us continues, and he continues to be intimately concerned with the health and well-being of his church. As head of the church, Jesus continues to provide encouragement. As a faithful king to his people, Jesus continues to be present with his people. And I get it, like Jesus' physical manifestation and presence with Paul was unique, okay? That may happen to you, okay? You might, and I'm sure some of you had had dreams where Jesus visited you and he spoke and encouraged you. That doesn't always happen. Um, This story is not saying that Jesus is going to appear to all of us, but this is what it means, simple, clear, and I hope it impacts your life. It's a reminder to you and everyone that Jesus is with you and will fulfill all that he's promised you. He is faithful. And this week, One thing I would love for you to do is just reflect on your life and say, Jesus, help me see the many times you came through and encouraged me, and he will show you. And so this morning, we've seen through the story that we are to speak out against injustice. We also saw that we're to respect those in authority, and lastly, we just see how we're to expect Jesus to encourage us when we need it the most. Let's pray. By your Holy Spirit, God, help us Help us. Help us 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.